If you have your Bibles, would you open with me to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15 is where we will be today, but before we get to where we will be, let's talk about where we've been. We are uh, currently in a series called Christ Meets Me Everywhere. Uh, we've spent about, I think this is our fifth, our sixth Sunday in this series. We got about four more left carrying us through Easter. But in, before we get there, before we get to where we are today, I think it's important to remember that we are currently with the Israelite people on a journey through the wilderness. We're entering into their story. We're not off from afar just saying, okay, let's take this and directly apply it to our lives. We first want to figure out what's happening in the text. What is the story that we're entering into now? And how can we then take that story and apply it to our lives? The story that we're in, in today is in many ways our story, right? So the people of Israel are delivered from Egypt by God so that they can be united to God as his people. And that's our story. We've been delivered from slavery and death, and then we're drawn into relationship with God and united in relationship with him. And what we have learned so far, and what we learned last week specifically, if you weren't here, you caught it on the live stream during the snowpocalypse, what we learned is that the Bible is a story about God's faithfulness to his people. Throughout Israel's wilderness wanderings, God continues to be faithful to them. He continues to call them back in repentance to himself. He continues to sustain them. And he continues to provide even amidst rebellion from the people of God. And the book of Numbers ends after what was supposed to be a two-week journey detoured into a 40-year journey through the wilderness and now the people are on the verge of entering into the promised land that God had promised his people. And then we come to Deuteronomy and you'd think, all right, they're going in. They're going to enter into the land and they're going to take it over. But that's not what happens in Deuteronomy. Instead, what we get is a retelling of the law. But not only a retelling of the law, we also get a series of sermons from Moses, who's the mediator between God and the people, where he begins to unpack what life needs to look like in the land. The land that God is giving them. And the main theme of these sermons is that you inherit this land because of God's faithfulness. And God's faithfulness alone. And for his glory. And in the land there will be many temptations for you to walk away from God. But here's how you make sure that that doesn't happen. Here's how you stay firm and committed to God. You remember how he brought you out. You remember how he delivered you. That's how you stay firm and committed. And because he loved you, you now have the blessing and the opportunity to love him in return. And that is the message and the main point of these sermons to the Israelite people at this time. And this is the key for the people to avoid idolatry and to remain faithful to God. Love for him. And what we'll find out at the end of the book is that there's two choices placed between the Israelite, in front of the Israelite people, life or death. And the choice to love God is a choice of life. The choice to wander from him is a choice of death. And in the text we find ourselves in today, we're going to begin to unpack some of the implications 
of God's faithfulness and provision, how that plays itself out in the lives of the people of God. What should the community of God look like? What should we be marked by? But before we get into that text, I think we may need to make a note of some things. Every single one of us is influenced by our culture. And what I mean by that is you have a family culture that has unwritten rules that influences the way you think and operate and make decisions. But more than that, you also live in a country that is found in the western part of the world. And western culture is often very influenced by European culture. And so we have a way of thinking and a way of doing things that is kind of considered this is what's right, this is what's cultural, this is what's understood that influences us whether we realize it or not. And I think there's two things that we have to make sure we pull out. There's a lot of good things about Western culture. I think that Western culture has provided so much to the world, but there's also some really negative things. And I think we need to be able to address those and recognize where those things are pulling our allegiances from God so that we can push back against them and point to God. And so here's what I think that are two areas where we as Westerners don't realize the influence our culture has on us. And the first is this. We have a culture of radical individualism. And let me unpack that for a second. So Radical individualism is this idea that I can do it myself. It's self-reliance. It's avoiding the help from the community and pushing towards to say, I'm going to make this happen. And so because of this, we often find ourselves not asking for help and not letting people in or not letting people see what's really going on. And nobody ever really knows where we're at because we have this idea that I can do it. And so we push towards the individual self accomplishing goals as a, apart from the community. The second thing that I struggle with in Western culture is the idea of being self-made, what it means to be successful. We built our fortune. We worked hard from the ground up to earn everything. And so the idea that tends to be prevalent there is that if you just work harder, you can make it happen for yourself too. Now, there are some positives to these things. I don't want to say that they're all bad. But when these ideas are idolized and are left unchecked, they don't line up with what the Bible teaches. Yet these are ideas that are prevalent in our culture today and accepted as the norm and this is the way it is. And so I think we have to identify that. And then what I want to do today is challenge these two ideas using the biblical text and hopefully helping us as a kingdom of priests and as believers in God to walk counterculturally to what the world has established and set before us. So we're going to start with a couple of assumptions. Individualism is the assumption that you should be able to do it all on your own. Don't inconvenience others by asking for help. But what I want to make sure that we recognize is that you were not built to do this alone. Like you were not created to do life alone. And that's important to recognize. And I want to challenge the self-made assumption that if you work hard enough, think smart enough, beat out the competition, you can rise to the top. You can do it if you just work harder. And I want to challenge that assumption today. Because when we think this way, it's so easy to slip into pride. And God hates pride. 
He's opposed to it. And it's easy to think, well, if everyone would just work like I do or make the same decisions I did, well, then they could do it too and their life wouldn't be a mess. And I I don't want to disagree that hard work is important, right? I think that that's actually a value that the Bible puts forth. Like it doesn't prescribe laziness. It prescribes hard work. And I'm not challenging the idea of hard work. I think we should work hard. I think that's wisdom that the Bible teaches But the Bible is opposed to thinking that you can earn things strictly by your hard work. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. And we are all victims in some way, shape, and form of our circumstance. We have to make that recognition. Now, this doesn't give us victim mentality. This is just to help with perspective. We have been shaped by our surrounding culture. Let me give some examples. You did not choose your family of origin. You didn't choose your hometown. You didn't choose what country you were born in. And all of these things drastically shape who you are as a person. Every single part of that will drastically shape who you are. And so the idea that you can just make it happen for yourself is contradictory to the fact that at the end of the day, you actually don't have that much control around your circumstances. So we can't just have this idea. If you would just work harder, you'd make it. Because we don't have that much control in our lives. Again, not prescribing laziness. I encourage you to work hard. But we have to be really careful to manage our perspectives so that we don't place on other people, if they just make the decisions that I made, they'd be fine. And so what we're going to learn from God's word today is going to challenge these ideas. And I want to prepare you for that. Prepare to maybe have some of your heart checked a little bit because I did as I was reading this passage. Prepare to be a little bit challenged and be willing to say, okay, Lord, let the Bible reform my culture. Let the Bible change the way that I view things. Show us Show me where I have been taught or trained and discipled more by the world than the word. So let's go ahead and read today. Deuteronomy chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 7, go through 18. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart. Or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely And your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. 
You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. Shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you. For at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you so much that you have cared for us. That it is in you that we live and we move and we have our being. Help us today, Lord, to submit to your word. Help me to submit to your word, Lord. I thank you for who you are. You are holy, God. And you have created all things. It is by your will that we exist, and it is by your will that we are created. And so, Lord, we lean into you this morning. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, so before I let you go too far, here's my, my main idea, my main point today. My main point is this. Gospel-centered community should be marked by gospel-centered generosity. So let's go ahead and unpack those first five verses of this passage real quick. But before we do that, I want to just make sure you hear something. I'm not talking to you about giving to the church today. We're talking about a passage of giving. I'm not asking for your money. Let's just get that off the table right now. This is not a passage about giving to the church. All right? Let's start there. There are other passages, but this isn't one of them. The first thing I think we need to draw out from this passage of Scripture is that the people of God are to be marked by generosity towards their fellow man. And we are commanded to have an open hand with wealth. And so the people of God are about to enter into a land and the command that goes to them is be generous with your wealth. Have an open hand. Don't hold tightly to your money, but open it freely to your fellow man when they are in need. So when a need arises from a brother or sister, the people of God in this passage are commanded to fulfill that entire need. They're commanded to not be stingy with their money. This isn't recommendation either. These are commands. And so what I mean by not being stingy is there's, in the passage directly before what we read today, it talks about what's called the year of release. And that's that every seven years in the land, you would release all your debtors. So if anybody owed you money after seven years that lived in the land, you'd say, okay, you don't owe me money anymore. You'd forgive that debt. And so the charge here is, hey, if somebody comes to you in the sixth year, they've fallen on poverty and they need money and you're going to lend them and you realize there's no way they could pay you this back, you don't hold back that lending from them. Because you know you're going to have to release them of that debt in a year. You give freely. You open wide your hand to them. And so every seven years, the people were to release debts. So not only was this generosity to be something that could never be returned potentially, it was to be something that they did happily. To give and to loan and to lend happily. 
So the second thing we need to draw out in the first five verses is that the command to the people was to have a generous heart posture. Not a generous hot posture, just in case you were wondering. I don't even know what that means. Um, but they're, they're supposed to give freely and not grudgingly. They're not supposed to hold back because they might not get back. They're supposed to give joyously and recognize that this is a glorious thing they're entering into. But there's something we have to recognize. To give financially in order to fulfill the command, but to do so aside from a heart that was joyously doing that, was breaking the command. It wasn't just do it, it was do it and enjoy it. Because otherwise, it would be sin. Now, if the people do these things, there is a promise that's attached to them. If they give, if they help their brother or sister in need, there's a promise that's attached. And this is an important promise. It's that the Lord will bless. Now, this is not a prosperity gospel promise. This isn't, hey, if you do this, you're going to make it rich. And here's why I can tell you that from this text. Because this text is not saying do X, Y, and Z and you're going to get a new Bugatti and you're going to get that promotion at work. That's not what it's talking about. That's a false gospel that actually treats God as a vending machine and is contrary to what the Bible presents before us here. You see, the reason that they were supposed to give, the promise that the Lord will bless was because there will never cease to be poor in the land. So if you're supposed to care for the poor that are in the land and there's never going to cease to be poor in the land, then what God has blessed you with is meant to go to the poor and then whatever comes in is meant to still go to the poor that there's a never-ending supply on. Now this doesn't mean we enter into poverty ourselves. That's not what I'm subscribing here and I don't think that's what the Bible is subscribing here. But what it is subscribing is when we see people in need, we jump on that. We don't run or avoid it. We don't hold so tightly to our money because we don't know if any more will come in. We trust that there's a giver of those things. And if the people were obedient to bless, keeping their hands open with what he had given them, he promised to give them more so they can keep blessing the constant supply of those in need. And I think there's two ways that this actually pushes against our culture. I think the first is we as human beings tend to refuse to ask for help. We tend to let people know when we're in a moment of need. We tend to not let people know when we're in a moment of need. And then the second way that I think this pushes against our culture is we tend to be cynical of the poor. Let me, let me unpack that. First, I think that there are times where we need to buckle down and do the hard thing in front of us and we probably need to just take care of it and not ask for help. There are times for that. But they're far and few between. I think we need to be a people who's much more willing to say, hey, I can't do this. Let me give an example. A couple weeks ago, I'm trying to plug my iPad in to behind the sound booth. And I'm reaching over and I can't get it fixed and Margarita's like, hey, you want me to help with that? And I just kept saying no. Like, why? Because I'm stubborn and prideful. Because <laughs> I wanted to do it. Not, I didn't want to ask for help. I didn't want to admit that I couldn't accomplish this thing in front of me. So I struggled with it for like five minutes when I could have just said, hey, yeah, can you plug that in for me? Done in five seconds. 
So I think there are times where we need to buckle down. There are other times where we need to break ourselves of pride and ask for help. The second way that I think that this pushes against our culture is that we tend to be cynical of the poor. And so it can be easy. I want to affirm it can be easy to lose trust because of past experiences that have gone poorly for us. I don't want to ignore that. There have been times where I have given and I'm sure where you have given and someone has broken that trust. They have lied about their need or they've disagreed or they've done something foolish with the money you gave them. That, that happens. Like, let's admit that that happens. So wisdom is absolutely needed to make sure that we're being good stewards of the things that God has given us. But if our initial response to poverty is to be cynical and not to walk in a desire towards open-handedness, we will walk in direct contradiction to a command of God. If cynicism is our first step, But this is often our tendency is to be more cynical of people in poverty, to think that others just need to work their way out of it, work harder like I do. No, nobody else came to confession today? All right, that's good to know. I'm alone in that? All right, I'm preaching to myself, that's good. So our tendency, or at least my tendency, is to never let people see me sweat, right? I never want people to know that I am suffering or I'm struggling or I'm hurting. Never let people know that I can't make it on my own. And I've gotten into real trouble in the past because of this. But this is, this idea is actually directly opposed to the gospel, Because if our default is to never ask for help, if our default is to be self-sufficient as human beings, to be enough on our own, then we will never be able to turn to Christ for all that he offers us. You are not enough. And that's good news. That's okay. That's not a shot at your personality. If you feel a gut check there, that's a good thing. That shows there's something there that's pushing against that, that's trying to say, no, I am enough. I'm an achiever. I know what that's like. I thrive on accomplishing things on my own. But you're not enough. I'm not enough, and that's okay. You're not supposed to be. And self-help in our country is telling you a lie that you can find the solution to all of your problems in these eight easy steps to success. Or you can do it on your own. Or if you just look inward, you can solve the problem. Don't buy that. I'm begging you to not buy it. The solution to your inadequacy is not to lean into yourself more. If you're inadequate, then leaning into inadequacy is not enough. You cannot draw on a source of not enough to somehow make you enough. And this is what makes the good news of Jesus so sweet. that he is enough and he invites us to ask for help and it's readily available to us and if you're not enough then it's perfectly okay to not be okay it's perfectly okay to be struggling to not have it all together all the time whether that's a spiritual or a physical or an emotional poverty that you're dealing with But upon receiving the help that's readily made available to us in the gospel, we now can become people who recognize that if it were not for the grace of God, in our lives, we'd be wandering in spiritual 
poverty still. And we'd be without hope. But all too often, we tend to think that we are enough, that we have enough. Maybe that's because we haven't fallen on enough hard times. We live in a pretty comfortable world. Maybe it's because we, we've, we've done things right. We think it's easy to figure out somebody's invited us to speak on success at a couple conferences or we've had our own business that thrived. Nobody's invited you guys to do that? No? no. Neither have I. So good, good to know we're all in the same place. So it's easy because of these things to look down on those who don't have it figured out. Every single one of us has at least one area of our life where we've got something figured out, right? Like one, one area. And it's easy when somebody comes up and they don't meet those standards to be like, come on, guy. Come on. It's easy to slip into that heart of pride. And so what's the solution? How do we, how do we break ourselves from that? If pride is opposed to God, if believing that I am enough puts me separated from the gospel, then what do I do? How do I break this? How do we break ourselves of economic and spiritual pride that so easily grips our hearts? Look at verse seven. Verse seven says this. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns, and this is where I want you to note, within your land that the Lord your God is giving you. The people were to always remember and keep before themselves that the reality was they did not earn this land. They didn't get it their own. Sure, they may have fought some battles to get in there, but it was the Lord's righteousness and faithfulness that brought them to that place. They couldn't work hard enough for it. It was a gift. And it was not a result of their righteousness or their faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness and his nature as a giver of good gifts. And this is our solution as well. To remember that all we have is a gift. Amen. Everything. There's not a thing you own that's not a gift. Right. And sure, maybe you've worked hard and, and it, Again, I stated earlier, there's a lot of merit to that, and I would encourage you to work hard. I'm not prescribing laziness here, but perspective. The people of God are to walk in radical generosity because Christ, who was generous to us in giving up everything to take on our debt, he was generous with his life, laying it down for us. And because of his work of generous giving, we can now do so for others because of what Christ has done for us. Amen. And so the church should be a contagious community of radical generosity that people look at and say, I want that. I need that. I don't have that in my own life. I've been trying to go it alone. I need help. I need that community and so we shouldn't look down on people who come in in need. Instead, we should open wide our hand to them. And open wide our hands specifically in the context to brothers and sisters who are struggling. Amen. Now, this passage plays both. The initial focus is on the poor in the land who is your brother. But it finishes out the passage with, so the Lord your God will bless you, or open to, I believe it's verse 
Uh, I was looking at the wrong place. Verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor. It's not just the brother and sister. It's to all who have need. That's our responsibility to take on. That's not something we legislate. That's something we do from a heart change. Similarly, the people are to deal with indentured service in the same way. So this slavery that's being talked about here, I think we have some baggage with that word, rightfully so. And there are other passages in the Bible that discuss different types of slavery. But this specific type of slavery that we're dealing with today, to make sure I'm being faithful to this text, is people who have fallen into poverty that they cannot climb out of. And so they need to work as an indentured servant in order to pay back whatever loan that they owe. So this is important to us. Not all slavery in the OT is this, in the Old Testament is this, but this specific slavery is. What this is talking about is indentured servitude. And so people would come, these specific people, the Israelites would come from a background of being slaves, right? They just spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And they were under harsh slavery. They were treated poorly. And instead of becoming like that culture, becoming like the slave drivers that they were under, they were to be a radically different community, one marked by deliverance. And so they were delivered from harsh slavery and they were now to be marked by the deliverance that they were delivered from. So indentured service had an end date. Immediately we see that. You work for six years and at the seventh year, you go free. You're set free. But it wasn't just any deliverance. It wasn't just, hey, you've worked, you've paid your debt and now you can go. It's you've worked, you've paid your debt and now we're going to liberally furnish this individual so they can go and actually thrive and succeed in life. Why? Because God had delivered them in the same way. In Exodus chapter 12, it says that they were delivered from slavery. And the fascinating thing is that God sovereignly works it out so the Israelite people would be furnished wealthily by the Egyptians as they're on their way out of slavery. In fact, the, the specific term they used is they plundered the Egyptians. <laughs> so that's this, the deliverance that they were to be marked by. And it should shape how they live. God's provision and deliverance was supposed to shape the way the people lived and God's provision and deliverance should shape the way that we live. Because, because Christ took on our state of poverty and delivered us from sin and death by his work on the cross. Now because of his generous deliverance for us, we should be marked by generous deliverance for others. When we see people in bondage or in debt, we step out and we say, let me see how I can help there. Let me see how I can provide that same deliverance, that same generosity that has been provided to me. Our community that is centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ should be marked by gospel-centered generosity. We did not choose life. God chose it for us. And we now recognize that without him, we have nothing. 
When we recognize what God has done, how he saw us in a poor state, in slavery to our sin, and how he sent his own son to rescue us, it should transform the way that we live so that we can now step out in generosity for others to show them the reality of what it is that God has done for us and what he has done for them. But in order to do this, our hard and prideful hearts have to be melted by the grace found only in the generosity of God in Christ Jesus. We reorient our lives around this thinking and when that happens, when we love God for who he is, our whole outlook towards others changes. If he is a God that is generously giving and providing deliverance for us, how much more so should we generously give and provide deliverance for others? So our outlook towards those in poverty when we're centered around Jesus and his work should soften. Our approach to those suffering from hardship should change. We look to those in a time of need, not with a disposition of you can work your way out, but with a disposition of generosity and a love for others. Again, I'll say it again, not prescribing laziness here. We look to those in a time of need with generosity because Christ has loved us. And sometimes this might mean helping someone who's in need by lending them a car or, or letting them stay with you. And I would prescribe some wisdom there. You know, you don't want to just let any random person borrow your car or live in your house because you also need to protect your family. And I, so wisdom, like I'm not saying just be reckless with this. But I, I, I will say this. Jesus was generous to his enemies. So there should be a way that we find where it's probably a little uncomfortable to, for us to, to give to people. It's not a giving that just comes easily to us. It should be something that, yeah, this is uncomfortable, but I want, I want to generously give because Christ has generously given to me. Because I was his enemy and, and he died for me and he gave to me. And, and that, that community should be something that people look at and crave I want to be a part of that family because look at how they take care of their own and look at how they reach their hand out to those in need. And so maybe it's something more practical by helping someone with a meal. Maybe you know a single mom who needs help and so you can offer to help around the house with cleaning things or you can offer to take her a dinner one night. Or maybe you know that somebody is in need of some cash and today after service you're going to slip a 20 into their hand. And maybe it might mean helping somebody else get financial counseling because you see they've got money, they just don't know what to do with it. So maybe it's helping them figure that out, helping people to write a budget. Maybe you're an employer and I, I think you take care of your employees. That doesn't mean lack of accountability. We, we hold our people accountable, but we love them and we provide well for them. As employers, we shouldn't be striving to pay people the least amount of money as possible so that we can make sure we bring it home. Like we should be a people that is marked by generosity, marked by care for others in need. 
The first law of life in the kingdom is not self-preservation. It's self-sacrifice. And that means we care for others. It also means we let people know when we're in need. Not a single person in this room is above falling on hard times. I'm just telling you honestly, like, to, to lean on Christ for what he's given you, to trust that what he has given you is to be given and helped with others. Not to the point where you then need to go ask for help, that's not what I'm saying but so that you can care for those around you, so that we can lift each other up. But this only happens when we're caught up in love for what it is that Jesus has done for us. Every single one of us was in spiritual poverty and without hope. You may still be in that place of spiritual poverty and without hope. And you've got some circumstances before you that you just don't know what you're gonna do. And there is a God who lavishes his love upon his people and he desires that you would come near to him. He desires to be radically generous to you. And so I think that we need to be centered around the person and work of Christ, the, the perfect picture of God's generosity to us that he did not even hold back his own son. So is it hard for you to give or is it hard for you to help the poor, I would say look to Jesus. Is it your tendency to feel a tug towards self-sufficiency? Look to Jesus. And do you struggle to love God and love neighbor with a heart posture that, that is one of generosity? Look to Jesus. This morning I want to invite you, if you don't know Jesus, he's waiting for you. You can turn to him. Life is available for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, so much for your word. We thank you that we can look to you for hope, for life. You give so many good gifts. May we never forget that or take advantage of that. And may we be a contagious community, Lord. And what I mean by that, and that's probably the wrong word choice during this time, but may we be a community that people see and say, I, they've got something I want. They've got a love for others that I don't have. They've got a generosity that exists within them that I need. So Lord, we invite you into this space. We desperately need you. And you are available in abundance for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.